Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 18th, 2015. This is episode 1522 of the Survival Podcast. It's called Debt, the Good, the Bad, and the Evil. I, Jack Spierko, who has been podcasting to you since 2008 who has been called a debt Nazi, have to do this show because it's truly long overdue. A, a lot of things have changed, and my opinion of debt has not really changed, but my adaptation to the current paradigm has changed a bit, and I'm going to talk about debt today with you in a way you may not have ever heard me do so before. I will be a little bit softer to certain forms of debt, and albeit maybe harsher to other forms of debt. Anyway, before I get on with that... Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is HarvestEating.com, the illustrious Chef Keith Snow that will help you learn how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got great stuff at his website for your cooking, too, especially his spice blends. Check out the curry chicken. That's awesome. Montana steak is my absolute favorite, and I probably rely on the northern Italian seasoning about three or four times a week at minimum. Uh, if you check out what Chef Keith's doing, you'll learn how to make cooking that life school skill, and you'll realize that cooking is definitely a prepper skill. Check them out today, harvesteating.com. Next up today, westernbotanicals.com, herbs of a different kind. I'll tell you what, Western Botanicals is a real company made up of real people that really care. And if you need help, if you need uh, some assistance, and you call them, you're going to get real people right here in America that are going to take your call and help you with your customer service issues. And if you ask them for something like, I have a yield sign on my spleen, and I want to know what herb to put on it, they're going to probably tell you to go to an emergency room. They're not going to make any claims of miracle cures or anything like that. That's why I work with them. They are the finest provider of herbs, herbal supplements, and, and whole herbs and herbal preparation products that I've found in the country. Uh, and they are the only people that I found that I really feel are doing it at their their volume and their level with their selection as ethically as, as they are. If you check them out, you'll figure out why I feel that way. Again, the website is westernbotanicals.com. Please remember, Harvest Eating and Western Botanicals both provide discounts to the member support brigade. If you're a member, just go and log into your MSB account. Click on Benefits once you're in your account, and you'll see the discounts. And they're pretty dead-gone impressive from both companies. If you're not a member... Consider joining. Right now is the time to join. Why? Use the discount code COLD, C-O-L-D, COLD, and get $20 off your first year, getting that first year for 30 bucks. It's an awesome deal. Check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. If you want to pay by mail using the mail-in form, just write the discount code on the form, and we will honor the same discount. Uh, with that, let us look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1522. I have the Luther Bible New Testament. The headhunting hospitalers and uh, tax incentives and poor barons revolt and the problem of change. I'm going to read the Luther Bible New Testament. You can read all of these at the TSP Wiki for the year 1522. Link in the show notes as always for you. And uh, so Luther Bible New Testament, what's that all about? The New Testament portion of the Luther Bible is published this year. It is a translation into the New High German directly from Hellenistic Greek. Thousands of copies are printed and distributed within weeks due to the printing press that has spread primarily through what is modern-day Germany. This translation will contribute to the normalization of High German into its modern form, just as the popularity of Dante's Inferno prompted the standardization of modern Italian. Martin Luther has disappeared for a year, but he's come back with a vengeance. He believes the Latin translation of the Bible, St. Jerome's Bible, has been influenced by church doctrine, so a fresh translation is needed. My take by Alex Shrugged, every Bible translation is influenced by the current understanding of religious doctrine in order to make it comprehensible to the reader. That is why Martin Luther's translation was needed in the 1500s. Even if you trust the official church, it was as careful and honest as possible in 1522. The Latin translation was over a thousand years old by that time. Translations are required from the original every few decades as the understanding of words change. The alternative is translating them yourself. I'd recommend that is the best practice, using the concordance is a reasonable compromise. Even if you trust your clergy's understanding of the Bible, 
Having this skill keeps the clergy on their toes. It will remain trustworthy, or as the old Russian proverb goes, trust but verify. FYI, Ronald Reagan is famous for using the same proverb when negotiating with the Soviet Union. I knew that, but I didn't know it was a Russian parable or a, a, a Russian proverb. It's interesting. Uh, that's kind of throwing somebody's words back at him there, I guess. Anyway, um, here's how I feel about this time in history and what's going on here. Whether you are a Christian, a Muslim, or a Jew, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a deist, an atheist, uh, an agnostic, I don't care. I think this is a really important time in history to understand because what's happening is the power is being transferred from those in power to the people through knowledge. And it's why we should have the most liberated society in the world today because there's never been a time where the information to make your own decisions and do your own critical thinking has ever been higher than right now. But yet still people rely on other people to tell them what is and what should be. And I think it's great to get advice from people. It's great to get learning from people. It's great to get information from people. But in the end, you have to decide what information you want to process, what information you don't. You have to do with it as you will. My take by Jack Spirico. On the translations... Um, I find it ironic that some people will say things about the King James Version like, that's the original Bible that we need to follow to the letter. Well, if you read the Old Testament and there's some things in there we don't do and there's a good reason for it. But uh, I would point out that, well, that's not really the... If, if I put you back in England at the time the King James Bible was written and set you out on the street to talk to people... You'd halfway think they're talking a foreign language. You wouldn't have a clue what they're talking about half the time. Words change in meaning. The truth, I feel, if you want to understand the Old Testament of the Bible, talk to a Jew who speaks Hebrew. Because I've been amazed at my interpretation of Old Testament passages and how different they are from the people whose book they're actually from, who've studied the language they're actually written in. And it would be interesting, I think, for today, for true scholars to go back and translate the Old and the New Testament along with the apocryphal books and all of the lost gospels and everything we can find based on our modern vernacular from people that are truly experts in the language of the time. And I think regardless of your religious beliefs, it's an incredible look into the past and look into history. Again, my take by Jack Spierko. With that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. I do want to remind you guys that are taking Nick Ferguson's plant propagation course that this Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 1 Central Standard Time, Nick and I are doing live conference calls, two hours each day answering your questions. You have to be a student to get the information. The, the call-in information you should see in your email box today, tomorrow at the latest, and it will be re-emailed on Friday and possibly re-emailed Saturday morning. If you're getting multiple emails from there and you're upset about it, please forgive us. I just want to make sure everybody gets it that's a student, including people that might sign up in the next couple of days. So that's why you might see some duplication of that. It won't go on forever. It'll go on until the calls are done. Um, it's going to be awesome, and I want to remind those of you who pre-registered and have not yet purchased the course that on the 24th, which is only six days away, that discount obliterates itself into nothingness. So you may want to take advantage of it. I'll be emailing all of you that pre-registered today to remind you about the call and to remind you about the expiring discount and remind you how to get the discount. And if you have, if you don't know what I'm talking about with getting the discount, you're not getting the discount because you didn't pre-register for it back in December when there was an opportunity to do so. So anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, debt. Jack hates debt. Jack is a debt Nazi. Jack will, Jack will punch you in the face with a Sistema punch if you own a credit card. Yeah, not so much anymore. There's a lot of things have changed since 2008-2009 when I went on the air, and a lot of things haven't changed. But let's start out with what's changed. Why, why do I have any difference of opinion right now? One of the primary things is I've always said, credit cards are the devil. Get rid of your credit cards. You don't need them. They suck. And the big objection people had was, I need a credit card to rent a car. And for years, uh, while people said that, I traveled four, five, six times a year and rented cars from everybody, Hertz, Avis, uh, National, what have you. Never had a problem till about two years ago. So for about four and a half, five years, I thought your objections were BS because, well, they were. 
Uh, about two years ago was when the shift started in earnest, and it wasn't just a company here or an outlet there. It became very difficult to rent a car, and uh, we ended up in a situation where we ended up paying a couple hundred dollars extra to finally be able to rent a car. We had to provide our return plane tickets and all kinds of bullshit. And we got home, and I said, Dorothy, get us a credit card. She said, really? I said, yeah, just for travel. So rental call po car policies. The next, it's gotten, it's gotten much more difficult to get a mortgage anymore. And it used to be that there were a lot of ways that you could develop a track record with a bank and get them to underwrite your mortgage, and you didn't need a credit card, and it was all bullshit. It's more difficult than ever. Almost every bank out there that used to operate that way has ceased underwriting mortgages And now it's really one of the only ways to build enough of a credit history to get a mortgage. The next are auto loan policies. It always helped to have some credit card history to get an auto loan, but now it's gotten to be very, very difficult without a co-signer that has excellent credit. Um, land financing policies kind of falls under the, the mortgage policies, but I wanted to put that in there too because some of you are interested in land without a, out of dwelling, and that actually is more complicated and more difficult sometimes to arrange financing for than, than something with a dwelling on it. Overall bank underwriting of any loan whatsoever, including personal loans, has, has changed a great deal, and it's only likely to get worse from here. So since all of those things change, I have to change my opinion about what you should do today. My opinion about what you should have been doing in 2008 has not changed. But it's not 2008 anymore. And I am nothing if I am not adaptable to the changes of the times. And it's what I try to teach you to do. So I'm going to say something to you today that's kind of a warning. Everything I say from here should be taken as though it were advice about firearms. If you point a firearm at somebody, you're wrong. If you point a firearm at yourself, you're wrong. And if it goes off, you could hurt yourself or somebody else. And nothing anybody says to you on a podcast should be taken as permission to do anything stupid with a firearm. And you must understand that you may not fully understand what I'm saying at any point along the way, despite my efforts to be an excellent communicator. And you may not even get what I'm saying the right way. So you always have to have the final check on everything. And I'm going to try to give you ways to do that. I will never sanction stupid debt. Nothing you say to me will ever make me do that. I will never say it's okay to take evil debt. I'm breaking debt down today into three forms. Good debt, which does exist and always has, but there might be a few more forms of it today. Bad debt, which sometimes must be used, even though it's bad. And evil debt, which you should never go into ever under any circumstances unless you can immediately transform it from evil debt into bad debt or good debt. And I'll talk about how to do that today, too. But do not think, Jack says I can go get a credit card and buy a bunch of shit today. <sighs> It's all okay. No. And if you're in a debt elimination plan following a debt snowball that I'm not going to go into today, it is not okay to get off of it now. Debt blows. It's, it is absolutely bondage and imprisonment. The word mortgage, just to drive this home to you, mort is from the word Mortal or mortality, death. Gage is from the old English word that means gauge is to grip, death grip. To mortgage is to be under the grip of death. And yet I'm calling it a good debt if certain criteria are met. That should say something about how bad evil debt is. If the good debt is the grip of death, what do you think evil death is? Signing your own death warrant is what it is, your financial death warrant. And it's taking tremendous amounts of your life. So don't see this as a softer view on debt. See this as an adapted view on the necessary application of debt in modern life. And it's still best to be debt-free whenever and however you can. All right? So now I can actually go through what are the rules before you assume debt. It's mostly asking yourself a series of questions. The first question And it doesn't matter jack diddly shit if you can't get back this past this first question is can I service the debt? Servicing the debt is more important than paying the debt off. The goal is to pay the debt off, but you, you, you don't have to pay off a debt faster than the agreed upon terms, but you must service it. Service means that this is the payment, this is the terms of the payment, this is all of the cost in making a payment every month, and can you do that And when I say can you, I mean can you do it with ease? 
Can you do it without stress? Can you do it without having to go out and take a second job? I don't know, uh, punching orphans in the face or something. Can you do the required servicing of the debt without major alterations to your life? And if the answer is yes, then we can proceed. If the answer is probably, then you got to figure out how to make probably a yes. And if the answer is no, then you either have to change your life so the answer becomes yes, or don't do it, stupid. All right. If, if you can't tell, I'm going to be kind of hard on you today with this because I'm I'm giving you some advice that could get you into trouble if you don't counter it with logic and reason and a lack of emotion. So can I service the debt? That doesn't mean do you feel you can service the debt. That means the numbers go into Excel spreadsheet and they work out and you know the results and the answers. Yes. Okay. The next one. What other opportunities does servicing the debt cost me? I'm going to buy a car. It's going to have a payment of $350 a month on it. What can I do with that money if I didn't buy the car? Now, if I have to get to work, I have no car, and this is the type of car I need to do my job, I might not, it might not matter what it costs me. It might just be that it costs me. So I need it, but I also need to check, even when I'm going to say, okay, it's going to cost me these things, I need to know what it's costing me, so I don't go try to do those things in addition to the debt that I feel I have to take on. And if it's, oh, it's going to cost me all this stuff, and I'd rather have that, and I can get by with this hoopty car, drive the hoopty. At least for another year. There's nothing wrong with driving a car that's paid for it as a piece of shit for another year. And then you say, well, I'm going to save gas money. Okay, fine. Figure it out. How much money are you going to save? You might figure it out in like 50 bucks a month. That does not make a car payment. So if the new car payment was going to be, let's say, $250 a month, then pay yourself $200 a month like you have the new car for a year. If you can do it no problem at the end of the year, go ahead and buy the new car. Take that money, turn it into a down payment, drop the payment, throw the hoopty on Craigslist, you'll get more money for it probably than from the dealership. All right? But you have to look at the other opportunities. Next, is there any other option? Is there any way I can do this without taking this debt? Almost always the answer is yes. So in consort with this question has to come, is it a better option if it exists? In the totality of my life, you have to think about yourself this year, next year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the road. In the totality of my life, is the option better? If the option is better, duh, take the better option. If the option is almost like it's hard to tell which one's better, then you start looking at, well, quality of life, short term, a little bit matters, yeah. Okay? If the answer is those other options are actually not better, they're just not better, then the debt starts to make sense. And, and I'll explain one of those. So I leased a car. And everyone went, holy crap, Jack leased a car. No way he finance. He leased it. He's not going to own it. Why, why would you do that? Well, okay, because I bought a $39,000 Toyota 4Runner with a lease. Uh, got a stupid amount for my Jetta in trading. Like, I'm like... Take it before you know what you're doing. I don't. I don't think you guys know what you're doing with what I did to that car over the years. So fine, whatever. Uh, so that pretty much covered the down payment. And then, no matter how it worked out, this is this is the, how the numbers worked out. So if I bought the car on a five year loan, um, my payment would have been almost two hundred dollars a month higher, higher. Okay, so the buy was two hundred a month higher than the lease. The lease is a three-year lease. The buy was a five-year buy. At the end of the three-year lease, I have multiple options. I can walk away for no money at all. If there's any value in the trade-in, I can actually take the money out of it and walk away. And with the value of Forerunners, yeah, it's probably there's, there's some trade-in value there. So I can actually get a check and go somewhere else. I can use that to get a new vehicle, or I can convert it to a purchase at that time and finance the purchase or pay it off in cash. All right? So do a little math for me. $200 a month for three years. $2,400 times three. What do you get, folks? Should I do the Jeopardy music for you? Do, 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 Wrong answer. How do I know you got the wrong answer? The right answer, of course, $7,200. So over three years, I spend $7,200 less with the lease. The purchase price at that time compared to the amortization, see it's important to know words, like amortization, that's the, that is how the loan value declines over time, okay? $800 different. 
at 36, if I was making my 36 lease payment and had all the options that I had in front of me, walk away, get a check for the trade-in value, use the trade-in value to buy a new vehicle, convert to a purchase in finance, or pay off the finance. I have all five of those options, okay? With the purchase, I owed $800 less, $7,200 less out of my pocket, $800 less value owed, and I now have the option of trade it in or continue to pay for it. I don't have the other options. I can't get a check for it and walk away. So the other option of debt wasn't good. Well, what about just buying it, Jack? Um, the cash sale price was only about $1,000 less than the finance price. There is there was no math ever that if I if now here's the thing if I was going to buy the vehicle there was no math on God's green earth that could lead to anything other than the lease option it didn't exist it doesn't exist and it can't exist now you get there with a logical thought process an Excel spreadsheet honest mathematics and no emotion that's that's how because you know me emotionally I don't want to lease a vehicle. But logically, that's where it led me. So that's one way you, you, you gotta look at things like that. So even though there was a better, and this isn't some fuzzy math, like, well, if you had the money in your pocket for five years, put it in the bank account, got a quarter percent interest. No, no, this is flat out total dollars out of pocket. There's no world in which the lease wasn't the best way to purchase that vehicle with the most options. Because there's some other questions coming up that you have to look at when you determine what kind of debt you're, you're getting into, and they're very important. And Because it's part of the last one right here. What is my exit strategy if I can't pay? Well, if you buy a vehicle and you've had it for 12 months and you can't pay anymore, you've got a big problem. And since your payment's bigger than the lease payment, if the numbers work out the way I just gave you, you've got a bigger problem because it's more likely you'll get to where you can't make the payment. Right? But if I have a house, if I have a house... And I buy smart, then it's quite likely that I can actually skate by the skin of my teeth for long enough to sell the damn thing if I market it properly and get out from underneath it. But it ain't happening with a car. And if it is going to happen with a car, it's going to happen with a car, you know, three, four years into it with really good maintenance, a really good resale value. So you have to look at what is your exit strategy, and I won't go deeper into that because we kind of get into that as we go through the different forms of debt. So let's start off with when is debt good? When do we have good debt? I say debt's good when it pays for real property that is a good investment. Now what do I mean by real property? I mean real estate. A piece of dirt with a house on it or a piece of dirt. And then you have to get the other part in there. That is a good investment. If you're buying in a trendy area where property values are artificially inflated, then you probably should not be buying the property. And based on the fact that you like this show, you're probably going to live around people you don't want to live around. Just to be completely honest. Okay? Here's how I make this determination. There's no doubt that if I picked up my home where I live here in Texas and moved it to Pennsylvania, it would sell for more money. Property just has higher values in the in totality of the state of Pennsylvania. Okay? But it's not that much more valuable. It wouldn't cost me that much more money. Maybe another $50,000, $60,000 on a property that's a $200,000 property. You get my drift. But if this property existed in L.A., I'm sitting in a million-dollar house. Okay? If I can pick a million-dollar house up and move it somewhere else, I'm not buying it if it's going to be worth $250,000 anywhere else on the planet other than maybe at the bottom of the abyss at the bottom of the ocean or something like that. With some obvious counterbalancing arguments for high-end investment property, if it's overlooking the ocean or something like that, yeah, whatever. But when you get into, well, this is a trendy area of downtown and all the yuppie people live here and they have really good schools. So we're selling this property for three times what it would sell for 25 miles away. Don't buy the property. It's not a good investment. Because whatever is propping up the artificial value could fail in something like, oh, I don't know, a recession or a depression. Hello. But when you have a property that, Price is at a point where when you, if you were to geographically move it, 
with some moderation of expectation. Again, Pennsylvania and Texas, two very different property markets. Okay, But it would pretty much stay the same value or go up in value if it were somewhere else. It's probably pretty stable in value, which means you're going to have a good exit strategy. Okay, And if you can put a significant amount of equity into the property initially, it's like buying an insurance plan. First of all, it'll save you what's called primary mortgage insurance if you can go at least 20% down, which is almost always a good idea to do. You run the math. How long will it take for that to pay itself back? I bought one house where we could have went 20% down, but it would have took 13 years for the PMI to pay itself back. It was easier to buy the house with the PMI, put the improvements we were going to in anyway, five years later have the property appraised, and then use the appraisal to get out of the PMI. Right? See, it's all math. There's no, you know, like I'm giving you some emotion to entertain you today, but in the decision making process, there's no emotion. Well, I love the house. I don't care. What's it worth? Well, to me, it's no. No, no, no. You worry about what it's worth to you after you've bought it, after you've moved in, and after you've made it your own. And, and, and you made a logical decision to get that far, and then you can worry about, well, it's worth more to you. When you're buying it, no. It's not whether it's worth more to you. It, it's about what's it worth to the market. This is how you stay out of trouble. This is what makes your debt good. Um, the next thing is debt is good if it, if it makes you money, if it's profitable. If you can use debt to genuinely make a profit, or if you can finance the purchase of certain things that then become expensable that otherwise would have been depreciable, and in agriculture that's often the case, then a lot of times on the balance sheet and in every way you can analyze it from a mathematical standpoint, the debt is good. It's profitable and it reduces tax consequences. And you gotta have a business plan that goes along with the expediency of taking that debt and know that there's a profit on the other side of it. You can't just say, well, I think it works. Alright, so you have to have a legitimate business plan in place, an understanding of your market, a projected value of whatever product or service that's gonna be financed with this debt, and the, you gotta have a total, this is the conversation have with a CPA, unless you're one, you're probably, and, and a tax attorney, by the way, and unless you are one of those things or both, you're probably not capable of determining this for yourself. You might have an inkling, but you wanna, you wanna check it. Not with me. I'm not a CPA. I'm not a tax attorney. When I have to make this kind of decision, guess what I do? I talk to those people. They're paid to tell me what is, and they don't give a shit what I think. Now, there's times where I'll use my entrepreneurial instinct and say, you've advised me, that's great, move out of my way, i got to get this done. But when it comes to debt, I know they're going to give me the real picture so I can make a decision. And if I'm even making a decision that's not quite 100% by the numbers, there's a little bit of instinct in there, I know what I'm balancing my instinct against. When you're doing that, and you know what you're doing, That is good. Um, if it pays for an asset that increases in value, debt is generally a good thing. So real property in general increases in value over time. Financing an appreciating asset makes sense as long as you understand what the projected appreciation is. You can service the debt. You understand the other opportunities. Every, you can't just take the... Please understand, this is like permaculture. You can't take any one thing I say without the totality of everything I say today. So I don't have to keep going back. I'm just going to trust that you're going to get that from this point forward. So if, if you can pay for an asset that increases in value, it's good debt. Now you're going to notice as I go on with this interconnectedness, some debt has things that make it good and some that make it bad. Right? So this is not black and white. There are shades of gray here. So we'll get to that. But you got to understand that too. So if the asset increases in value, the debt is more likely to be good than bad. That's a great way to put it. The underlying liquid asset value exceeds the loan value. Oh, there's a lot of big words there, aren't there? Let's take them one at a time. The underlying, that means the, the, the actual value, okay? The underlying liquid, that means it can be converted relatively quickly. A, bar, a house that sits on the market 12 months to sell is not a liquid value. The, what would that, what would it take pricing a house to sell it in 30 days to 60 days. I consider real property moved within 60 days pretty liquid. By the way, I've never had a house take more than 30 days to sell because we know how to market our homes. We, we get a real estate agent say, you do the paperwork, don't worry about this marketing because you don't know what you're doing. I, I'm dead serious. I wrote letters for my real estate agents. You, When we had offers on the table, I'm like, 
She's like, well, we need to do, you don't worry about what we need to do. I'm going to write an email to you. You forward it to the other agent, and we'll take care of it from here. Because most real estate agents are morons. I'm sorry. 85% of real estate agents that I've ever talked to in my life are idiots, and I can do their job better than them. Right? They're not like tax accountants and CPAs. You have to take control. But the underlying, so let's go back to underlying, liquid, now we know what liquid means, asset. The, what is the thing that's financed? That's the asset. Okay? Value, what you can get for it, exceeds, is greater than the loan value, the amount you've bought. So if I buy a house that has an underlying liquid asset value of $200,000 and I finance $150,000 on it, I have a very clear exit strategy if I get into trouble. I sell the house and put $50,000 back in my pocket. Yeah. Now, it's easy to convince yourself that you can do that. You need to actually know that you can do that for this to apply. Okay? The next is, are there there are any additional options for discharge that can mitigate your damage? So in many cases with something that you might lease, you can have an exit clause. Make three payments at one time and go away. Well, if I can't pay, then how am I going to come up with three payments? Well, if you have 30 payments left, you might be able to shit three. You might even be able to go into a bad form of debt with a different type of discharge capability to get rid of that debt. Okay. Now, I know we're not supposed to talk about this because your patriotic and honorable duty as an American is to always pay every debt that you have. Well, there's also another saying, you can't get blood from a stone. And it's very possible that you could get into a situation where you simply can't service the debt load you've taken on. And no matter how good you do everything else I'm telling you, that can still happen. No matter how safe you are with your gun, an accident can still happen. right? But we do things to mitigate the accident. If we're right with our muzzle discipline... Even if we have an accidental discharge, when we were sure the gun was unloaded, nobody dies. Okay? This is muscle discipline for your debt. You have to have an exit strategy, and you need to know what other options for discharge exist. So when you're sitting down and having that discussion when financing that vehicle, you say, so what happens if I get into this uh, 23 months on a 36-month lease and I can't pay it? I, I'm, I'm strapped. I have to, for whatever reason in the world, a dragon ate my daughter. I have to get out of this. And then they give you the what would that mean? Well, you, it's going to get repossessed. Your credit's screwed. You might still do the deal, but you need to ask the question. You might be able to negotiate that. Well, could we put a clause in there that if any time after 18 payments, I could make three payments and discharge the debt with no adverse effects to my credit? They might look at you like you have a lizard coming out of your ear. They might say yes. They might say yes. You never know. People are hungry these days, man. They make deals. I'll tell you what a deal I got. I got my son a lease on a car, a Nissan Altima. No trade-in, $2,000 down, three-year lease, $129 a month, folks. That's like something they even advertise on TV, and you go there, and they never do it. Well, they did it for me, because when they offered me $149, I said, you know, let me go look at Toyota. I think Corollas have better resale value. <laughs> they didn't let us leave. $130 a month, no termination fee. I mean, it's amazing what you can get when you ask, right? Um, but you want to know if there's additional uh, options for discharge and, and what those do to mitigate your damage. Um, if the debt increases the value of an existing asset by more than the loan value, what the heck does that mean? That means if I have a piece of property, whether it's real, you know, uh, a home or just land or whatever, and it has a liquid asset value of $100,000, Uh, let's say, oh, right at what it's worth. It, it, this actually might be worth taking on debt actually reduces your risk. Check this out. I have a piece of property worth hundred grand as it sits. Okay, It has a liquid value as a real piece of property for hundred grand. It is reasonable that within 30 to 60 days I could have it sold and discharged off for what I owe and break even and walk away with not a pot to piss in but no additional debt. Okay, Now I borrow $25,000. But the $25,000 of value leveraged into the property transforms the liquid asset value of the underlying asset to where it's worth $150,000. I now owe $125,000 total in two uh, pieces of debt on the asset, but the liquid value of the asset is now $150,000. I'm actually in a better position now. Because now I can 
even go below the liquid value to move it quicker, 140, walk away with money in my pocket. I could probably dump it in a day at 125 and, and walk away scot-free, which was my best case scenario before. And in all likelihood, I could make $25,000 on the sale of the property now. I might even do that just to take the capital and do something else with it. So that would be a good day. I don't see an argument now. Can you mess that up? Yes, but if that's the facts, then it's a good debt. Okay? The next is, and this is the last one for good debt. Most importantly, you know what the F you are doing. I won't say the word, but you know what the word is. If you do not know what the F you are doing, you are never looking at good debt. Take that for what it is. Next, debt is bad. Debt is bad when it pays for a commodity that cre decreases in value but does hold value. So I don't consider car debt good. I consider it bad. But it might be a necessary bad. I believe in necessary bads. I do not believe in necessary evils. Okay, Evils are to be vanquished and killed and murdered and stabbed through the heart with a wooden stake and set aflame so they never come back ever again. Bads sometimes are necessary. So sometimes you might take debt that is bad. So I gave you some good things that tell you that a debt is good that might apply to a car loan. Yet a car loan will always be bad in that the commodity that's being financed does decrease in value. It, de uh, it decreases in value the day that you... It's not even when you drive it off the lot like you think it is. When you sign the papers and take on the responsibility of the debt and officially take basically... It's not really ownership. Because the lien holder owns it. You take possession of the vehicle. Before you even get in it, turn the key, it just dropped in value. It has literally dropped in value because it's been owned by somebody else. It's been transferred. Done. So it's a depreciating asset. But it holds value. If I finance a piece of jewelry, it's likely that I'll never get what I paid for it, but I can get something for it. It leaves me some level of an exit strategy. Over time, I'll, I'll reach a crossover point as I discharge the debt where it does become equal. And as I keep paying it, it'll actually get to the point where the asset's worth more than the debt because it holds some value. So that's a bad debt, but it's not an evil debt. The next one is it's difficult but not impossible to service. So if you have to take on a debt, like... You need a car for work, and you need a new vehicle. You can't, and either the cheapest reliable vehicle you can get your hands on is going to stretch your ability to finance it. But you can go ahead and make the changes in your life in advance, and then that gets you to work, and that makes you an income and all. It's a bad thing, but it's possible. It's possible. Okay, the next thing that makes a debt bad is when it buys things you don't really need but you simply want. The debts are always bad that way. That's, it's never good. It's not always evil. Because the debt might buy you a nicer car that gives you a higher quality of life. You don't really need it, but you can service it. And in essence, it does make you money because it serves a function that you, you, you want. As you can see, real property and vehicles are the two places I give you the most latitude with debt. That and financing business ventures, and then you better know what the F you're doing. In, in more ways than just the debt. Okay, but but th that makes sense. It's still bad though because you don't really have to do it. Doesn't mean you won't, but accept that this really accept it for what it is. Okay, the next thing is discharging is difficult and comes with serious damages to your your credit or your life. So it is much easier to discharge the debt of a home unless you bought stupid or you got caught in a storm, so to speak. Because some of you guys did. I'll be fair to you. Um, But it's, it's usually much easier to discharge the debt from a house than a car. But it, it's almost impossible to discharge the debt from a computer. If you finance a computer, you know, with easy financing or whatever, or a couch, right? It's almost impossible. And it's going to go on your credit report. And the whole reason you're willing to take on some of these debts in the first place is so that you can have a debt of the credit available for positive uses. So that type of debt can actually hurt you long term and your ability to do something like buy the home of your dreams. Okay? So that's, that's really uh, something you have to be very careful with. If, if, if there's no way out, the debt's bad. 
In fact, I wouldn't say it's no way out, but it, it's, it's a hard choice. It's not impossible, but it's a hard choice. It hurts. Bad debt. Evil debt. Okay. Evil debt is if any loss of your income will render servicing it impossible, it's evil debt, don't take it. What I mean is, oh, I can make it work. I can service the debt. But if I got a 10% cut in my salary, I'm screwed. That's evil debt. Uh, if one spouse loses their job, there's no way we can service this debt and, and not be homeless on the street. Evil debt, don't take it. Because the answer to the first question of can I service the debt is no. No, if you can barely service the debt, not just have to make some hard choices and some adjustments in my life, but I, I, I can barely do it, and any alteration will destroy my ability to service the debt. It's evil debt. Do not take it. It is to be stabbed through the stake with a heart and set aflame so that it shall never return. Okay? Uh, if you have a debt that's impossible to discharge, it is an evil debt. And there's one debt that's impossible to discharge. Student loans. Student loans are impossible to discharge. They will garnish your Social Security to pay for it. I consider them evil. I will tell you a way that you can use student loans a little bit later. And I wouldn't say that no one should take a student loan, but if you do so, you are literally coexisting with the dark prince when you do. And you better be aware of that. You better be aware of what it means. And 90% or more of our young people that are told to do this by their parents do not know they are inviting the Dark Prince into their life for 20 to 30 years or more sometimes. Some of you should just name your student loan and consider it a pet because you've had it longer than you'll ever keep your dog. If a loan pays for anything other than servicing your business or a home, and it lives longer than your dog, it is evil. Add that to the list as a bonus today. Okay. Um, if you have an underlying commodity, the thing you're financing, that rapidly sheds value and becomes worthless, the debt is evil. I, I mentioned a couch. Honestly, a couch is not a bad debt. It's an evil debt. Sit on a milk crate before you finance a couch. Unless you're doing it to build credit, which we'll get into later. Okay? Which means you're going to pay it off almost immediately. Okay? All right. Um, but if, if, the, if you can't exchange the commodity for capital at any reasonable level versus the debt, it's evil debt. Stab it through the heart, set it aflame, never to be returned. Um, if you don't know what the F you're doing and or why you are doing it, debt is evil. If you do, Let me say it one more time. If you don't know what the F you are doing and or... Or, why you are doing it, the debt is evil, stab it in the, in the heart with a stake, set it aflame, and never let it return. Okay, And most people in this country, the majority of their debt, any loss of income will render servicing it impossible. It's impossible to get rid of, or very, very difficult, airing back to the bad. The underlying commodity rapidly sheds value, becoming worthless in time. And they don't know what the F they're doing or why the F they're doing it when they do it. So when you hear me say debt is evil, that's because the majority of debt is evil. And there's a lot of insidious things it does to your life, but those are the things that make it evil. So the reality is at some point we do have to say, but there is good debt. And there's necessary bad. Again, no necessary evil. You must destroy the dark prince. Stab him through the heart with a stake. Shoot him in the face with a shotgun, number four buckshot, pour gasoline on him, set him aflame, and then bury him in the deepest hole you can dig with a 25-ton excavator and have your dog shit on top of it and plant a tree just for good measure. Something with a deep taproot. Okay? I can't be any more clear than that. But now, how do we build credit in today's environment? Let's talk about that. All right, so I want to reiterate a warning I've given you several times today, and I want to tell you that I'm about to basically say, here is some ways to use a loaded gun. And if you use it improperly, you're probably going to have an accidental discharge. And odds are, if you have an accidental discharge with this gun, you're at least going to blow off your big freaking toe. So use good muzzle discipline, and I'll leave it to you there to be an adult for yourself from this point on. But I would set up every system of redundancy to make sure nothing can go wrong here possible. So one of the things um, is to buy something with good to not so bad debt. 
to go ahead and do it. Whatever you can qualify for, and then pay it off. Find something that you could pay cash for and buy it on credit. Get store financing on something. When you do need to buy that new couch, okay, and you've went out and you've just you 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 figured out that hey, I need to buy a dadgone couch. I don't want to, but I got to. I need one. My 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 old one stinks, or I've never my first place. I've never had one before. And you go find one you can afford. And they say we have easy financing, no interest, no payments for 36 months. Fine. Write the check that day. It's gone from your bank account. It no longer exists. You've already spent the money, but fill out the form. And this is a great way to get somebody in your life that cares about you to be willing to co-sign for you on your first loan. Because if my son came to me and said, "Well, I want to build my credit," and I actually, I'm going to write the check right now. I'm going to show you the check, and I'm going to put it in the mail immediately to pay for this debt, but. I'm going to run it through, and they won't approve me without you. Will you co-sign in a New York minute? So you buy something that's not so bad to begin with, and you pay for it immediately. Uh, and another one you can do is you can use bad debt to pay for better debt or good debt. So another way that you can build some credit is to do something like this. I, again. A vehicle is one of those things that most of us just can't go whip out forty thousand dollars to buy a vehicle, or even buy a, a mid-priced vehicle at fifteen, twenty, twenty-five grand. At the point you're driving a fifteen thousand dollar car, you probably don't have fifteen thousand dollars to buy a car with. And again, there's lease agreements available on some of these vehicles, and look for the stuff with the better resale values. Your mid-priced cars, you, 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 my boy, and then uh, Nissan Altima, your Toyota Corollas. These cars, the Toyota Camry, they have great resale values. They have good lease terms. So you go out and you get the lease on the car. Now, if you're a new person with you know a credit issue, you may need a co-signer. You may even need to be the co-signer. So the way I got my my son the smoking deal on his Altima was I went as the primary, he went as the secondary. That only does so much for his credit because I'm lead dog on it. That also means I'm responsible for it, but it's $130, and I can take it out of his butt if he doesn't pay. All right? So it's a mitigated risk for me, a mitigated risk for him, but it only does so much for his credit. But what makes sense then is go out and get a credit card. Yes, I say credit card. Because if you never need to rent a car or something like that, they're not for emergencies. Emergency funds are emergency, okay? A credit card to pay for an emergency is the prince of darkness. He's evil. Drive a stake through his heart. Set him on fire. Bury him in the ground never to return again, all right? But a credit card to rent a car is you have to rent a car. They want one, so therefore it's required to rent a car. So you're going to need one for that anyway. So then what you do is you set automatic credit card payment, to pay your lease payment or your car payment, okay? And you set an automatic bag payment to pay the credit card because it's the same amount every month. Now you've got two lines of credit running, but you're really paying cash. Now, if you don't set it up to be automatic, it is highly likely that in a moment of weakness, like a drug addict trying to recover from meth, And someone fires it up in front of you or whatever the hell it is you do with meth. Because I don't know. Smoke it, whatever. I don't know what the hell people do with meth. But whatever. Shoot it. I, I, whatever. It's like being that guy. Okay, I know what you do with beer. You drink it. So you're an alcoholic and somebody's partying in front of you and you can't handle it and you grab a beer. So that moment of weakness here comes. I'm really strapped at the end of this month. The credit card bill says pay the minimum balance of $20. Bucks. I can catch up next month. Next thing you know, you're carrying a balance. You're incurring fees. All this other crap. Because the beauty of this is, if you get a credit card with no annual fee, all right, and it, no interest if you pay your balance in full, and if there's points and all rebates or whatever the hell you want, I don't care. Whatever you can get, you can get. But your first credit card is going to suck. You probably have an interest rate like 18% or some shit. But it doesn't matter because you're never going to pay it. And since your car payment is $134.50, right, every month, and that's the only charge going on your credit card. You set up your bank to pay your credit card, your credit card to pay your car. You can't screw it up. And every month, you just deduct that money from your bank account before it even happens so you don't spend it by accident. Now, this takes discipline. You actually think this, this removes the need for discipline, but it doesn't. This takes discipline. I'll tell you why it takes discipline. Because of why you don't want to do it. Those of you that don't want to do it right now know full well why you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. 
Because, well, what if the money's not there when the automatic draft comes? That's the discipline. You have to make sure that it's there. If that's going to be the problem, then the debt has gone from okay, sort of bad debt or good debt to evil debt. It is the Prince of Darkness. Stab it in the heart, set it aflame, bury it in the ground, plant a tree on top of it and have your dog crap on it and kill it. Again, the tree should have a deep tap root so it goes through the heart a second time. If that is actually a concern, you have gone from, you have gone from good debt to moderately bad debt, somewhere in that gray scheme of things, to evil debt that must die. The next one is, you can essentially pay for everything with cash using debt only as a funnel. So some people have said to me, well, you know what, Jack, I get 2% cash back on my credit card. So I buy all my groceries with my credit card, and then I immediately pay the balance off. There's nothing wrong with that. If you do it, see, here's the problem. The, the majority of Americans are claiming to do things like that while not just blowing their big toe off with their gun. They're shooting themselves right dead center in both feet, once in the kneecap, winging their wife, shooting their kid in the ear, and then saying, but I'm not hurting anybody. Almost nobody that says they're doing it does it. But if you're willing to make sure there's no way not for this to happen, if you can have a credit card that allows you to pay at any point in time, not wait for an invoice. So I go to the store. I get my groceries, $213.95. I walk home. Before the groceries are in the cabinets, I'm sitting down at my computer. I'm using my smartphone app, and I say, make a payment to this account for the exact same amount. I'm now developing a credit history. I look really good, actually. Credit card company don't like me, just so you know. Credit card company don't like me at all because I'm not making them any money on the back end. I am making them money on the front end. I'll explain that in a second because they make money on the front end. That's why there's such a thing as a Visa check card. Um, but if I'm doing it that way, funneling expenses that are going to exist anyway through a debt mechanism without actually ever incurring or burdening the debt is a way to build credit. But it's the only way I'm okay with it. It's the absolute only way that I'm okay with it. So the other way is any kind of thing that is a regular expense that you can insure with automation, which is kind of a version of what we just talked about. But if you are, if you have, um, let's say you have a a storage facility, a rental facility that you keep, uh, like a, like like because you've moved to a smaller apartment or something like that would be an example. It's thirty nine bucks a month. If they take credit card auto pay. And you set up bank auto pay on the same day for the same amount to the credit card, and you funnel that money through there, that's fine. And that helps build credit. Because the reality is, in this day and age, to develop enough credit history to eventually go to a mortgage lender and say, I want to buy this house over here, you have to have some credit track record. You have to do some of these things now if you want to be able to borrow money. And there is good debt, so there is reason that you would want to borrow money. And, and to be completely honest with you, 2000, 2008, 2009, with any kind of, uh, any kind of financial history, not necessarily a debt history, and a good income, and a smart purchase of property, you could go get a bank to underwrite a mortgage. You didn't need to do this shit in 2008, 2009. After everything fell apart, And after so many banks just said, we quit. We don't want to be in this business anymore. It is very difficult now to find the independent banks, independent lending institutions that do their own underwriting, that are willing to look at giving money to someone that doesn't have a track record of being stupid and having credit. So you have to be smart and pretend to be stupid and have credit. And, and these are the ways that I would do it today. You funnel the money through a debt instrument, but you never allow the debt to accrue interest. And and it, it takes discipline. And what I want to really end with here, guys, and I think this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is not a permission slip from Jack to get into debt. Use your effing brain. Use your effing brain. You have to. You have to look at every time you touch 
touch debt is you're you're playing with a rattlesnake. Okay? And and you should never play you are handling a rattlesnake. Playing with rattlesnakes is how you get bit. Handling rattlesnakes is something I've done in my life. I don't really do it anymore, but I still would if I had to. I still have the equipment to take care of them. But let me explain to you how I handle a rattlesnake. My philosophy comes from two individuals. A gentleman named Dave Philsinger, who's no longer with us. He died in a car accident many years ago. He was one of my father's best friends. And a guy that's not been with us for a very long time, just due to old age, his name is Carl Caulfield. And he wrote a lot of books. He was the director of the Staten Island Zoo. And he assessed, he amassed the, the, the most extensive collection of rattlesnakes and other venomous snakes ever put together. He was the first person that ever put together a collection of all North American rattlesnakes under one roof, ever. This is a guy that was out herping, which is, you know, collecting reptiles back in the 20s and 30s. And he said in his book, and I remember reading this as a very young boy, there's no reason that you should ever be bitten by a venomous snake if you follow one rule, never touch the snake. That it's almost impossible. Now you could step on it or something like that, but when it comes to you know the snake's there. Not, not this is not you're walking through the woods, you step over a blow down, you get hit in the back of the leg by a copperhead like I did when I was in my teens. This is I see the snake, I know the snake's there. I need to do something with this animal. There's absolutely no reason to get bit by the animal because you never touch it. Everything can be done with hooks and clamps and a bag. And and the and there are some snakes in some other parts of the world that are pretty agile and can do some things that are making them a little bit more difficult to deal with. You know, you're talking about a king cobra here or something like that. But when you're talking about North American pit vipers, rattlesnakes, copperheads, and water moccasins, if you get bit handling one of them, it's because you were playing with it instead of working with it. And that by taking a net a net frame with a net on it. And a hook or a clamp, I can back any one of those snakes into that bag, flip it over, and put that snake anywhere that I want it to go with zero risk of me being bitten if I know what I'm doing. Because I'm working with it, I'm not playing with it. What I've talked about today with debt is working with debt, not playing with it. We're not buying shit just because we want it. We understand the implications of the purchase. Okay? We're never barehanding it. That's what they call it in the reptile world. If I'm working with a, a snake that's venomous and I'm, I'm touching it with my hands, my, my skin is making contact with its skin, that's called barehanding. I don't barehand debt. I work with it. I work with it with Excel spreadsheets, mathematics, logic, decisions, automation, insurance. Right? Any way you can insure a debt is a good idea. And there's, there's ways to do that, but you're getting to more complicated financial situations. But you know what? If you're the main breadwinner and you don't have enough life insurance, at least to put yourself in a hole in the ground and pay off the mortgage on your home and the, and the price of your cars and leave you, whoever you're leaving behind with a little bit of money to figure shit out while they, they have, figure out how to deal with without you being there anymore, you're an irresponsible asshole. All right? And that, if I offend you, I'm sorry. And let me tell you, one of my best friends in the world, when I hear a certain song on the radio that was played at his funeral, I shed a tear every time because he's not here anymore. It was one of the most solid human beings that I've ever met in so many ways. And I loved him like a brother. But when it came to this, he was an irresponsible asshole. And he left his wife in a really shitty way because the only insurance he had was enough to pay off his pool. And he only had that because his work provided it for free. He had no life insurance. And how does that happen? It happens when two spouses each keep their own checkbook, their own bank account, and each pay half the bills. If you're going to do that, you are not ready to be married. Okay? A marriage is a merger. Little little advice there at the end. This shit, you people out there that do this, I do not understand you. Actually, I'll put it a different way. You don't understand what a marriage is. You don't understand what a marriage is. Because if your spouse loses their job, what are you going to do? Half a victim? Are they going to owe you back for, for, for all of the bills they couldn't pay during the layoff? Taking on debt is for grown-ups, not children. Getting married is for grown-ups, not children. Okay? And I'm sorry I have to talk to you like this. 
And I know some of you I don't. And the ones of you I don't have, the ones that I don't have to say these things to, you're probably enjoying this podcast. The more it bugs you, the more you probably need to hear it. I want you to think about that. So again, this is not a license to go out and get debt. This is not a license, if you're currently in a debt elimination policy, to change it. If you feel that a debt should be killed, it probably should be. And here's the good news. But Jack, I have to have a credit history to get a mortgage. I don't have one yet, and now I'm trying to pay off all my debt. You're creating a credit history by paying off your debt. A good one. Okay? So there you go. That's my updated analysis of debt. My updated analysis of the use of credit cards. Um, I still hate credit cards. I have one. I don't use one uh, other than for, you know, again, when we rent a car or something like that. But it's it's easy for me. In my 40s, haven't had $30,000, $40,000 worth of debt at one time, which is why I'm so against it, by the way. Knuckling down, paying it all off, getting my freedom. But in the getting, you know, we never really got behind on that. Bought multiple houses when it was a little bit easier to get a loan. Used my VA benefits to get a loan one time. You still got to have good credit with that, folks. But, you know, I've done all that. So when you're sitting with like a high 700, almost an 800 credit score, it's easy to say, oh, I don't need a credit card. Because when you do want to buy a car, you do want to buy a house, then people go, yes, Mr. Spirico, here's the money. You just need to sign here. But if I want to get you to that place and you're 24... I have to give you the blueprint to get there. And that's what I hope I've done today. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, you can go out, you're going to buy something, say you're going to buy a boat. Say you're a young man, you're like, you know what I want to do, Jack? I want to buy a $1,200 fishing boat. I don't care if you get it. If you can get if you have the money and you could pay cash, but you buy it with the credit card and then pay the credit card off, that's fine. If you go to a bank and you have $2,000 sitting in there and you use your, your savings account, is collateral for the loan, and they'll give you the $1,200 if you basically lock up the savings with them, and then you pay it off in two months in two full payments just to establish a relationship. I don't have a problem with that. But here's the, here's the you know, I, I'm big on sayings and stuff like that, especially when they have a, 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 a basis in fact. The road, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It, it really is. It's paved with the best of intentions. And debt is hell when it's not managed properly. And when it's used for evil, it is the fires of hell. So you know what to do. If it's evil, kill it, stab it, put a stake in its heart, dig a hole, plant it in the ground, have your dog shit on it, and plant a tree with a deep taproot above it. Otherwise, harness it and use it properly and responsibly. And understand, calling it a gun is actually a disservice to the gun because more lives have been ruined in this country through the use of debt than the use of the gun, including the use of the gun by the state. The willingness with which Americans chain themselves into debt prison is unbelievable to me. But I was once there with you. I've cast off my chains and I know freedom. Some of you may have to put the chains on to understand them. I'd prefer that you didn't. I would prefer that you learn from people who have gone before you and learn how to do this responsibly. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Yeah.